sure is good to be with you. I hope today is real significant for all of you, especially if you're a guest. We're delighted to worship God and are thrilled that you've chosen to be with us today. This is message number four in the study in Mark that we call the War of Myths. And just to start us off, I want to tell a little story about a guy named Chan Gailey. Lots of you probably know him. He's the former head football coach at Georgia Tech, little school down south. And he talks about a very humbling experience that occurred earlier on in his coaching years. He was head coach back in this day, it was the early 80s or so, at a place called Troy State, which is also, uh, which is in Alabama. They were about to play for the Division II National Championship. It was the week before the big game. Coach Gailey was headed out of the office doors, out to the practice field to practice with the team. Uh, He had made a few steps outside of the office door. A secretary ran to the door and summoned him back to an office, uh, to the office to take a phone call. He was ticked. He was quite irritated. He said, look, can't you see I'm on my way to practice? Just take a message. I'm on my way to the most important thing I do all day, which is to practice with the team, coach the team. She responded, but coach, it's Sports Illustrated on the phone. He turned on a dime right back into the office. I'll be right there. He made his way back into the building, and on his few steps that he had between where he was and his desk, he began to daydream about the upcoming article that he knew was going to appear in Sports Illustrated. He thought about what great publicity it would be for a small school like Troy State to be in Sports Illustrated. He's getting closer and closer to his desk at this point, closer and closer to that phone call at this point. He starts daydreaming about a three-page article not being enough space to tell the whole story of Troy State. We might need four or five or maybe even six pages to tell the story. He's getting closer and closer and closer to his office. He starts even to think, I might be on the cover of Sports Illustrated. That's what he's thinking. I might be on the cover of Sports Illustrated. He wondered, should I pose? Or maybe I should have an action action shot on the cover of Sports Illustrated. His head was spinning with all of the possibilities. He picks up the phone at his desk and he says, hello? The person on the other end of the line said, is this Chan Gailey? Yes, it is, the coach responded confidently. This is Sports Illustrated, the voice on the other end of the line said, and we're calling to let you know that your subscription is running out. Are you interested in renewing? Gailey concluded the story by saying, you're either humble or you'll be humbled. You're either humble or you'll be humble. And you'd think in this relationship with God deal that humility would just be a natural thing. I mean, this is God we're talking about, right? He is capable of God-like things. He is much bigger than we are, right? And yet very often humility in our conversation with God, in our relationship with God, in our engagement with God. Humility is the very furthest thing away to a lot of us, isn't it? Humility is very often an ever-present struggle, isn't it? I want us to look together into the sacred text today, the Bible, at the story of a woman who in one of the most unique interactions in all of the text with people and a person and Jesus, this woman nails the humility deal. If you've got a Bible, I invite you to turn to Mark chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along in the side screens. Mark 7, starting in verse 24, literally one of the most interesting and some say bizarre interactions uh, in the whole of the sacred text. Then Jesus left Galilee, went north to the region of Tyre. He didn't want anyone to know which house he was staying in, but he couldn't keep it a secret. He's Jesus, right? People just know where he goes when he goes there. Right away, a woman who had heard about him came and fell at his feet. Her little girl was possessed by an evil spirit. She begged him to cast out the demon from her daughter. 
Since she was a Gentile born in Syrian Phoenicia, Jesus told her, first I should feed the children, my own family, the Jews. It isn't right to take food from the children and throw it to the dogs. She replied, that's true, Lord. But even the dogs under the table are allowed to eat the scraps from the children's plates. Good answer, he said. Now go home, for the demon has left your daughter. And when she arrived home, she found her little girl lying quietly in bed, and the demon was gone. We pick up this narrative with Jesus traveling north to the city of Tyre. just want to put it up on the map, show you where Tyre is over in the right-hand side of the screen there. Uh, all those arrows are all Jesus' travels. And uh, you can see he kind of spins some circles and a little doolibop down south and north and so on. I don't know why the arrow doesn't point to Tyre. The Bible says he went there. So, uh, you know, something wrong with the map. Somebody should talk to the guy who drew the map. I don't know who that was. But Tyre is this ancient non-Jewish city. It had a very long and storied history of hostility with the people of Israel. Tyre, just so you know, is located in modern-day Lebanon, which is no picnic of a country these days. Queen Jezebel, one of Israel's most notorious enemies during the era of the divided kingdom, she originated in Tyre. That was her homeland. Josephus, who was a Jewish historian, he called the people of Tyre Israel's most bitter enemies. And Jesus goes to this place, a place that represented the most extreme kind of paganism that a Jewish person in Jesus' day could ever expect to encounter. It is dark in Tyre. Jesus shows up, and almost immediately this woman shows up to ask Jesus for a special favor. She has a special request. Now, this happens all the time. This isn't the first time someone has come to Jesus with a special favor or a request. But out of all the people who ever approach Christ asking for anything, this gal has the highest odds stacked against her request. First, she's a woman. A whole bunch of men in Jesus' day wouldn't even speak to a woman unless she happened to be their wife or perhaps their mother, and that was only if they needed something in some extreme instances. This isn't just any woman, though. She's a non-Jewish woman. She's a Greek woman born in Syrian Phoenicia. That means she's a pagan, about as pagan as they come in Jesus' day. She's got all these strikes against her, yet despite those, she begs Jesus. She falls at his feet, begging him to deliver her daughter from this demonic spirit that is holding her daughter captive. Now, most Jewish people in Jesus' day, they believed all non-Jews were demonized. The fact that this woman's daughter was demonized, it wasn't a surprise to a Jew in the first century. What would have surprised them, though, was that this woman actually wanted it cast out. She wanted it to go away. She wanted the stranglehold released. And we look at this narrative, there's a few surprises about Jesus' responses and interactions with her. The first one is this, most notable probably. That Jesus is hardly the affable, that means easygoing, by the way, fellow, we always imagine him to be. Jesus is hardly the affable fellow that we always imagine him to be. As a matter of fact, we see in this text, Jesus is quite irritated. We might even say he's ticked off at this woman. He dismisses her appeal for help, this rock-bottom appeal for help, with a very sharp insult. Mark seven twenty seven. First, I should feed the children, my own family, the Jews. It isn't right to take food from the children and throw it to the dogs. He's calling her a dog. Get that. Jesus calling this woman who is begging for help for her daughter, he's calling her a dog. Now, he does it in the most kind way possible, doesn't he? He uses a parable, he uses a metaphor to explain why he's not going to heal her daughter. First, he says, let the children eat all they want because it's not right to take the children's food and toss it to you dogs. See, 
The children in the parable, that's the children of Israel, God's chosen people. The food, that's the ministry of Jesus Christ. The dog is this woman and all non-Jewish people. He's saying, look, I gotta get my ministry to the Jews, I gotta get my ministry to the nation of Israel done before I branch out to non-Jewish people. He's affirming this priority of God's chosen race, the Israelites, in his mission. That's his main focus. That's why he came. It's only after he leaves earth and the church starts expanding that the doorway opens to a relationship with him for non-Jewish people, for Gentiles, which that's us, by the way. But he does something pretty cool. He inserts this word first, see. And when he inserts that word first, he's implying that the Gentiles have a ray of hope. He's saying, look, your day is coming. It's just not now. You've got to wait your turn. The Apostle Paul, he later affirms that very same priority for the people of Israel, the same one that Jesus does, Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of this good news about Christ. It is the power of God at work, saving everyone who believes, the Jew first, see, the Jew first, and also the Gentile. He does it again in Romans 2, 9, and 10. There will be trouble and calamity for everyone who keeps on doing what is evil, for the Jew first, and also for the Gentile. But there will be glory and honor and peace from God for all who do good, for the Jew first, and also for the Gentile. Remember, Jesus came as the Messiah of Israel. This gal, she doesn't just get to leap to the front of the queue to receive the benefits of his Messiahship. She's a Gentile. She's a non-Jew. And Jesus calls her a dog. And we hear that. And it's quite upsetting to our sense of justice, isn't it? Our hearts cry out. We go like, what? This is Jesus. This is the son of God, right? This is supposed to be a guy who is full of love and grace continually. Why doesn't he respond to this woman and her incredible need with much more sensitivity than he does? This woman can't help that she was born a Gentile. It's not her fault. She can't help that she happens to live in a city in the region of Tyre. She can't help that she's culturally a Greek. It's not her fault. We see Jesus be rude to this woman and we're like, what in the world? Now we like it when Jesus treats the Pharisees and the Sadducees like dirt. We stand back and we're like, sweet, those guys deserve it. The religious snobs, the religious elite of the day. Give it to them, Jesus. They deserve to be treated poorly. But we see Jesus treat this forlorn, broken mother rudely. It's quite another deal isn't it? Now, there's an argument made that's actually in Jesus' favor around this whole concept of boundaries. It gets to what's going on here. Let me paint this for you. Uh, A boundary is an imaginary line that helps you protect yourself both physically and emotionally. A guy named Henry Cloud and uh, Townsend, I think his name is John, wrote a book about it a few years ago. Maybe you read the book, Boundaries. Great book. And the reason it would seem that Jesus gets snippy with this woman is that he's trying to construct some boundaries around his life. Look, he's gone to the region of Tyre, right? Why in the world do you think he went there? Maybe he went there because the Roman authorities are starting to put the heat on him. The noose is starting to close in on him. He's attracting the attention of the Romans who are out to kill him ultimately. And by fleeing to Tyre, Jesus knows he can step outside of their jurisdiction. He can get off the hook if just for a while. Maybe that's part of the reason he goes. But it would seem more probable that Mark cast for us the sense that Jesus went to the region of Tyre, to the city of Tyre, to get a break from the crowd. He needed some rest, see. He needed some privacy, a break. Jesus is on this exhausting ministry pace and he just, for a short time, wants to step off the treadmill. 
Jesus has, and Jesus needs boundaries, see. He needs these imaginary lines that help you protect yourself both physically and emotionally. And if Jesus Christ needs boundaries, so do we. So do we. But I want you to know that in lots and lots of Christian circles, this, just so you know, is not one of them, boundaries are often seen as rude and selfish things. Now, often boundaries can turn selfish. They can turn rude. That's not cool. Selfishness is wrong, right? Selfishness is unloving. Selfishness does not ever square with God's invitation for us to love God and love people. But appropriately drawn boundaries increase our ability to care about other people. They just do. Appropriate boundaries are actually, watch this, an issue of stewardship, see. Boundaries enable us to be faithful stewards of the internal resources that God has given to us. That means that on occasions when we say no to people, when we say no to activities that violate some boundary that we've attempted to establish, we're actually protecting God's investment in the short term for a long-term better result for the kingdom of God, see. It would seem that's exactly what's in view in Mark 7 with Jesus and this woman. Jesus is attempting to draw some boundaries. He's trying to get some R&R, some rest, a step off the treadmill. And this woman breaks right through, doesn't she? And life, it has a way of doing that, doesn't it? There can and should be times in our life where we violate our own boundaries for the sake of the need of another, but it appears in Mark 7 that Jesus' boundary has been violated a few too many times, see? People just couldn't stay away. They just wouldn't stay away. They just wouldn't leave him alone. Jesus had a need for boundaries. We all have a need for boundaries. They're good things. They help keep others' actions and behaviors from hurting, distracting, annoying, and imposing on us. There are limits. A boundary is a limit that you set on other people, how they can treat you, how they can behave around you, because the truth is that people will treat you however you let them treat you. It's just the way life goes. And so you boil all that down, and you synthesize it to the place that I'm of the belief that Jesus' response to this woman is born out of the reality that she's stepped across a boundary that he's trying very hard to uphold. He needs rest. He needs alone time. He needs time to be refreshed by God, by others. And he is not happy that this woman has just pierced that boundary. We have this natural tendency to try to make Jesus into this ever chipper, ever happy, ever bubbly, life of the party kind of guy, right? I mean, honestly, think about all the pictures and all the paintings you've ever seen of Jesus Christ. Almost all of them image him smiling, right? Almost a permagrin on his face, right? They just do. I used to work for a pastor. He collected pictures and paintings of Jesus, but only smiling ones. If he wasn't smiling, he didn't want it. He had hundreds of them, literally. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with imagining Jesus smiling. I think he smiled an awful lot of the time. But to cast Jesus as being always smiling, having a permagrin on his face, frankly, it reduces his humanness. It entirely reduces his humanness. Remember, Jesus was as much human as he was God. See, he did that without sinning, remember. But he was as much human as he was God. That means, on occasions, there were days when he was dragging. Oftentimes, we don't ever envision Jesus dragging. There were days when Jesus was tired. There were days when Jesus was burned out, short on sleep, hungry, thirsty, 
There were days when Jesus Christ was just flat toasted and needed a break, see. He was always going somewhere, wasn't he? We complain when we have to travel, right? And we take airplanes and we talk about how exhausting it is to sit in seats and ride on airplanes to other places and then get off and go where we need to go. Jesus had to walk everywhere he went. No airplane travel. He was on foot. Travel is exhausting, let alone by foot. He's always being tugged in multiple directions by multiple people who were wanting multiple things from him, always wanting something, never getting a break. Jesus needed boundaries. They're crucial for his survival, just like they're crucial for our survival. Actually, survival isn't even the goal. It's thriving. For Jesus to thrive, he needed some boundaries. The same deal stands for us. Thriving means we need boundaries. If you don't have any drawn in your life, would you get after that, please? They are very important. And if you've lived a good portion of your life without any boundaries, this will be very difficult for you. It will be very, very hard because it will be new, especially to the people who like to continually cross those boundaries with you. It will be very difficult, but it will be very worth it. It's a stewardship issue. It gets to a longer-term payoff in the lives of people. You have to have something to give, right? It takes recharging. It takes refreshing to be about that. If you need some help with that, let us know. We'd be delighted to help you draw some in your life. Surprise number one is Jesus is not the affable fellow we always imagine him to be, probably because this woman has pierced a boundary that he's trying to hold to. Surprise number two, this is amazing. This woman, this is Jesus Christ, right? The son of God. She refuses to be put off by Jesus' less than genial response to her request. She's not gonna take no for an answer. She's not gonna be put off. She actually accepts Jesus' premise that the children are to be fed first before the dogs, her, ever get anything. And she's got a quick wit, this woman does. She doesn't even miss a beat and even expands on Jesus' parable. Look at Mark 7, 28. She replied like like that. She's quick. That's true, Lord. But even the dogs under the table are allowed to eat the scraps from the children's plates. This implied, very strong, very rude insult doesn't tick her off. It doesn't alienate Jesus from her. It doesn't embitter her. Instead, she actually gives it right back to Jesus. She engages him strongly with a compliment to his riddle that he tells, which is actually the third surprise, that unlike almost all of the other listeners in Mark's gospel, this woman gets the meaning of Jesus' riddle almost immediately. She understands without prompting who the children are, people of Israel. She understands perfectly that the dogs are the Gentiles, her. It was true in Jesus' day. That's what Jews thought of Gentiles. They're idolatrous, unclean, nasty dogs. She gets it, and I want you to know she gets it in a way that the disciples don't even get. If you read up a little bit in Mark seven fourteen to 18, you'll see that Jesus is talking about what pollutes people. They don't understand what Jesus is getting at with this riddle But this woman, she doesn't miss a beat, which leaves us surprised again with surprise number four. She refuses to accept Jesus' dismissal. She's not taking no for an answer. 
We actually think that she put a whole lot of stock in the fact that the dogs that Jesus alludes to in his insult of her actually refers to house dogs, pet dogs, dogs that scamper around inside the house versus the kind of mongrel scavenger type that prowled the streets chewing on dead bodies in Jesus' day, which was very commonplace. And this woman very humbly accepts the role of being a house dog. She says, all right. I'm a house dog, and I'm begging for food. But she very strongly disagrees with the stress that Jesus places on that word first in his riddle. Her logic is, look, Jesus, I know that the master isn't going to snatch food out of the children's mouth in order to throw it down onto the floor to the dogs. I'm not even asking for that. She just says, I just want some of the little scraps that match the little dogs Jesus referred to that fall off the table as children messily eat their meals. That's all I'm asking for. I'm a little dog asking for a little scrap so my daughter can get well. This woman, she has at least one kid, right? Maybe more. That means she knows exactly what mealtime is like around a table where there's children. It's a disaster on the floor underneath them, right? It's just an absolute disaster. I have no idea why we put things like carpet and hardwood on floors in dining rooms. I don't know why we do it. We should put grates, a simple grate system that catches all of the stuff that falls off of the table. You who have lots of time on your hands, you should just invent this. And I don't know how the stuff gets out of the grate, but figure that out later. But at least it's not on the floor then, right? This woman knows exactly what feeding time is like. She knows that when a kid eats, there's all kinds of scraps hitting the floor. The dogs can just swoop in and eat it up. She gets it. And she's humble about it. She's not asking for a place at the table like a full catered meal. She just wants a little scrap of Jesus' power for a little dog like her, like her daughter. Now you talk about humility. Talk about humility. Now put yourself for just a moment in that woman's Birkenstocks, the official footwear of Jesus' time, by the way, and think about what offends you about this story. What is it that offends your sensibilities and your stereotypes of who Jesus is and how he operates? Put yourself in that woman's shoes and ask yourself, how would I have responded to Jesus calling me a dog? None of us like that. But our answer to the question reveals a whole bunch about us, right? Maybe some of us would say, well, if that's how Jesus feels about me, I'm not going to him for help ever again. That's a pride response that wells up, isn't it? Nothing more than pride. No one likes being called a dog. But if we were, especially from Jesus, our pride would kick in. Our pride would suddenly overwhelm our sense of need and prevent us from ever asking for help again. And in that moment of pride, it's then that we turn to bizarre things, frankly. We turn to little g gods, gods of our own making, who won't ever offend us because we're somehow convinced that we're special, that we deserve God's best, that we're worthy of God's grace and help. But see, it's only when we're truly desperate that we'll actually do whatever it takes, anything it takes, strip of all our pride And ask God for help, you see. And that twists us up. All of that twists us up. This conversation twists us up. But we're not the first people to be twisted up by this narrative, see. 
It's been having this effect on scholars and ordinary readers for a whole bunch of centuries, as a matter of fact. Why Jesus' gruff response to this woman? Why is he so surly as she pleads for health and help for her daughter who is literally being tortured by demons? She's doing all the things that we would expect Jesus to like her to do, asking, seeking, knocking, and then all of a sudden, Jesus snaps at her about throwing scraps to dogs. What's the comparison between a dog and a sick child? What is it? There's none. Jesus is talking about the legitimacy of people who are eating at the table. Everyone else, no matter how needy, how deserving, how appropriate their request it would seem, can expect nothing from him. In Matthew, Jesus talks about, don't throw to dogs what's holy, don't do it. And when you synthesize all of this down, those are all questions that the text raises, aren't they? But the key to understanding what's in view in this passage is to note the woman's response in the face of Jesus' refusal to meet her need. She's empty-handed. She has no claim on anything. She has no claim on anyone. She has no merit. She has no priority standing. She has nothing whatsoever that commends her to Jesus. As a matter of fact, she has everything that would cause Jesus to actually repel from her. And yet her conduct and her manner is the precise opposite of this snippy, you owe me attitude that just runs so rampant these days. I heard the story not long ago about the very powerful CEO of a large internationally known company He was standing in the line at the DMV with his wife, waiting for their turn to get their driver's licenses renewed. You talk about an ordinary thing to do. There he is with his wife, standing in line. He's taking his number, and the little thing is just ticking around ever so slowly. He's grumbling under his breath about the inefficiencies of the people who are supposed to be renewing driver's licenses. Pretty soon he grumbles under his breath at his wife. Don't they know who I am? She replied, yeah, you're a plumber's son who got lucky, she said and nothing more. And she's absolutely right, see. And unlike that guy, that powerful CEO, who thinks he's entitled to cut to the front of the line, this woman in Mark 7, she never tries to argue that her case is special, that she should be the exception to the rule. She doesn't ever lobby for special treatment. She never stoops even to the level of pointing out to Jesus. This is very interesting. She never stoops to the level of pointing out to Jesus. Look, Jesus, you're not even in Israel right now. There's not even any Jews around you. So how would you, throwing me a little scrap, deprive Jews of anything? It's a great question, but she doesn't ever ask it even. On the other hand, she doesn't ever cut herself off from the miraculous power of Jesus by thinking that she's too unworthy to receive anything at all. She accepts Jesus' judgment. All right, I'm a little dog, but will you throw a little scrap to a little dog? Just let a little crumb fall off to this little dog. And she bows down as a beggar, humble, appealing to Jesus' grace and mercy. And the grace of Jesus is absolutely amazing, isn't it? I wanted you to hear the story from a friend of mine. His name is Kyle. I met Kyle just a few weeks ago back in Guest Central, and I've actually asked Kyle to come and share a bit of his story about how he came to faith in Jesus Christ. So would you please very warmly welcome our friend Kyle. All right, good morning, everyone. Um, Well, I'm Kyle, and I just grew up down here in Willow Creek, USA, uh, out on a farm, and... uh, yeah, it was kind of hard growing up, 
didn't have a whole lot, and it, you know, it was very intense. You know, I, my dad taught me how to drive a tractor at age seven, and you know, it was just crazy. You know, I, you know, from the beginning there was a whole. I, I felt a whole lot of pressure on me, and uh, my parents divorced at an early age in '92, and you know, I was six. My brother was five. And, uh, you know, so I, we were kind of confused, you know, like it was our fault or something. And, uh, you know, we went back and forth. You know, we were pretty lucky because all, all my family was, you know, right around the Three Forks, Willow Creek area. And so, you know, we weren't just getting dropped off at Bonnie and Clyde's or nothing. I mean, we were, you know, going to grandma's and aunt and uncle's and, and so on. And, uh, you know, I, one day, you know, I was 11. Uh, we were in the shop, me and my dad and my brother, doing something with the truck, and, you know, I lied to him about something, and, and he just blew a gasket. He said, go find your stick. I brought him back a shovel handle, and, you know, he proceeded to beat me up pretty good, and, you know, this was, this was a huge point in my life, um, you know, because, you know, I, I was humiliated. You know, I'd lied to my dad and felt like I had got him in trouble, and, you know, a week later, I'm in the courthouse, butt naked in this room, getting pictures taken of me. And, you know, got mom yelling in this ear, dad yelling in that ear, psychiatrist, psychologist, so on and so forth. And, you know, I just started learning ways, you know, to bury and hide everything. Uh, you know, I, I, it, was, it, was a, it was a big year for me that year. I, I switched schools. I went from three kids in my class to 30. And, you know, I, I rebelled in every sort of way. Started smoking cigarettes. Uh, I was drinking, stealing. I lost my virginity that year. And, you know, around 14, I uh, started smoking weed, stole my first car. Um, I, you know, I, th- I thought I was just borrowing it. I just walked down to the neighbors and, you know, walked in, grabbed the car keys, and down to homecoming I went. And, you know, that was the first, first criminal charge, I guess, I got that they, you know, they really started keeping track of, you know, that they knew about. And... You know, I, it was kind of like a slap on the wrist. You know, nothing really changed. Um, you know, mom and dad paid the fine or whatnot, and, you know, I was off and running again. You know, I it learned, you know, pretty early that, you know, being popular, being a good athlete, like, you know, I came with a lot of perks, you know, drugs, sex, and rock and roll. And, you know, you know, you know there was little moments, in, in, you know, especially, you know, playing basketball and stuff, stuff, you know, I, you know, I felt all right, you know, I felt like I had belonged somewhere, and, you know, I fit in, and, you know, I was 10 foot tall and bulletproof, had the world by the tail, and, you know, all the, all the temptations, you know, they, 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 they still had control over me, and, you know, fine, you know, it's like the summer going into my senior year, did meth for the first time, and ended up breaking into some guy's house that year, and, you know, me and a couple buddies, we got felony burglary, felony theft, misdemeanor forgery, you know, we took his checkbook and had some fun, and, um, you know, school rolled around, you know, it was basketball season, and, you know, we're at the district tourney, Friday night, beat Ennis by like 40 points, and, you know, we're going out to celebrate, and we're out at the town pump in Three Forks, and what do you know, my principal drives right around the corner to get gas, you know, what are the odds, and, you know, I was caught, pretty much caught red-handed, kicked off the team. You know, I'd go in front of the school board, all that nonsense, and through some technicality, you know, got a lawyer, paid a whole bunch of money, and I got to play two more games the next weekend at divisionals. And, uh, 
you know, after school, after I graduated, you know, I had to go into sentencing in July, um, got a three-year deferred probation. You know, a month later, I took off for Wyoming and uh, started school there, and it was just crazy. I mean, you know, I was on my own, and, you know, got in with some buddies. You know, I just started drinking. I didn't start, I was still drinking, and, uh, you know, I just was going downhill, and, you know, eventually I quit playing basketball, quit going to school. You know, I was enrolled in a public speaking class, and, I mean, that would have come in real handy here. And, uh, <laughs> you, you know, but, I, you know, I, I went to class like once or twice, maybe. And, you know, pretty soon the semester was over, and I, you know, said the heck with it, gave up on school, and I moved up to Haver with an aunt, uh, got onto a seismograph and crew, and, you know, was was really thriving. You know, I thought I was. You know, I was outside all day, working every day, making tons of money. You know, 19 years old, hanging out with 40 and 30 year old guys, going to the bar every day, every night. I mean, it, it was just nuts. And you know, this whole time, like, you know, I'm on probation. I'm not supposed to be doing this stuff. And <clears throat> you know, I, I had uh, got caught in a bar. In a bar, in we were in Shelby. You know, doing a job there. And I got caught in this bar, and, you know, probation and Shel- officer in Shelby, new probation officer in Haver, and, you know, found out who I was. And so I went to jail for a couple days. Uh, you know, I got out. Two weeks later, you know, just hammered drunk in the bar again. You know, 3 o'clock in the morning, cops come knocking on my hotel door, and I get hauled off to jail in my underwear. You know, I was so inco- incoherent. You know, like, I, I didn't even know I was in my underwear. And... It, I mean, it was just nuts. You know, I woke up and had to call my aunt. She had to drive three hours to bring me clothes, you know, because I couldn't walk out of jail in the scrubs. And, you know, my probation officer had had enough, you know, said, you're revoked, sent me back to Bozeman. And, you know, I had to go back in front of my sentencing judge. And, you know, I, it, was, it had only been like 15 months since I'd seen him. 11 MIPs, two dirty UAs, and, you know, for some reason, he gave me my deferred sentence back. And, you know, I, I got enrolled in treatment court and, the, you know, the Gallatin County pre-release. And, uh, you know, that was the summer of 2006. You know, I kind of just faked it through, you know, because I, you know, I wanted my freedom. And, you know, so, I mean, you know, I got sober, you know, and I, I did, did the things. You know, I just, I, I really didn't, you know, I knew what was going to happen as soon as I got uh, graduated from treatment court, you know, they had the paperwork and everything there. I signed it off and, and was re- released from supervision that day. You know, within two hours, I'm hooked up with, you know, an old buddy smoking pot. That night, I'm at the bar. And, you know, just just running away, covering everything up. And, um, you, know, the, you know, during this time, you know, I was in the pre-release and stuff. I'd been, you know, I'd gone to, first came to Journey and went to Campus Crusade a few times and, you know, I ran into an old friend of mine that I played ball with and, you know, he's like, man, I prayed for you all the time, you know, and I, like, that gave me just a little bit of hope, but, you know, I just pushed it, I just kept pushing it away. And, you know, I went back to beating my head against the wall, drugs, sex, and rock and roll, no direction, me and my pride. And, you know, I I finally asked Jesus Christ to be my savior. You know, I was exhausted. I mean, just lie after lie, trying to be someone else. I mean, I was tired. And, you know, I tried every other way possible. 
why not? So I, you know, said okay after, you know, some persistent encouragement and, you know, because I, I knew I needed help. I, you know, I really didn't know how to ask. And, you know, I came to Journey and, and uh, went back to Guest Central one, you know, it was a couple weeks ago. And, you know, it was crammed in there and, you know, me being impatient, you know, got scared, ran away. You know, I was in my car driving out of the parking lot and, you know, Beth turned to me and said, you sure you don't want to stop? And, and you know, something just hit me, you know, like I, I'd been running my whole life and I stopped the car and I came back inside and, you know, right there Brian was available and, you know, and I just started talking. I don't even remember what I said, but, you know, we ended up hooking up, talked a few times and, and you know, things, you know, now, now things are really starting to make sense for me. You know, uh, uh, you know, now that Jesus is my boss, you know, there, there's so much that is different. You know, I, I feel reborn, pure, and honest, and, you know, I can stand up here today, and it feels really good. You know, I'm not nervous. You know, I'm not ashamed, you know, because God is right there with me, and, you know, because I want that help now. It is not, it, it's really, you know, it's still kind of hard, but, you know, I can lay my pride down and, and ask for that help, you know. You know, with him in my life, no challenge is too big, too small, and, you know, he'll be my energy when I'm tired, my compass when I need direction, and, and you know, and I'm just so grateful for the friends and family that I had that encouraged me and, you know, kept persisting with me, and, you know, now I get to live it, and I'm really excited about it. Like the woman in Mark 7, Kyle came to Jesus humbly, drawn to him because he had a need, setting his pride aside, bowing down. This woman in Mark 7 and Kyle knew that Jesus offered healing, life, permanent freedom from the powers of evil, stuff that only comes through a relationship with Jesus Christ as Savior and boss. Having access, though, to that kind of food, as Mark 7 refers to it as, requires that we give our lives completely to him, that we make ourselves the last and we get down low, which is the posture of a disciple, whether they're Jew or whether they're Greek. And every single one of us, all human beings, we're just as desperate as the woman in Mark 7. We're just as desperate as Kyle was when sickness and life batters our existence. And we all yearn and long and need help, don't we? Whether we're high or whether we're low, whether we're rich or poor, urban, black, white, yellow, rural, red, Jew, Gentile, it doesn't matter. And the truth is that Jesus Christ turns no one away when we come to him with humble faith, just like this woman did, just like Kyle did. She accepted her place. She came to Jesus, just like all of us at some point in our lives must, as a sinner, needy and broken. And Jesus grants her request, doesn't he? That's how the story finishes. Jesus grants her request. And you know what that tells us by Jesus granting a request? That God didn't send Jesus Christ just to reward the deserving. 
He sent Jesus to serve the needy, whoever they are, wherever they're from, whatever their past is, because it's true. God helps those who humbly confess their neediness and acknowledge, look, I don't deserve a thing, but Jesus, I'm sure asking for it. I don't deserve a thing, but I sure need it, Jesus. Take your stuff and set it aside if you would. Just go to prayer and just think on those things. Tell God what's on your heart. And if I could just ask you to stay in a posture of prayer for these next moments. Christ followers, we can learn much from Kyle. We can learn much from this woman in Mark 7. If you follow Jesus, how's it going in your approach to Jesus? Are you approaching him humbly? Recognizing that you're worthy of nothing, that you're deserving of nothing? Or are you just sort of strolling into the presence of God day by day as if you're someone deserving something? I challenge you, God challenges you, that if your posture with him is anything but humility, square that with him. Set the pride aside. Confess the sin of pride. It's a sin. Confess it to him. Tell him you're turning your back on what used to be the prideful self and ask him to help you set your course toward humility and ask him to help you maintain that posture of humility with him and with all people. And maybe there's some of you here, here today who find yourself in the place that Kyle found himself in just a few weeks back, far from God, drifting, searching, Could I ask you right now very boldly, what's keeping you from stepping into a relationship with Jesus today, experiencing his forgiveness, experiencing his gospel? What's keeping you? Why not make this day your day to step across the line of faith in him? Because the truth is, just like with Kyle, Jesus has been pursuing you for a very long time. He loves you. And he wants to forgive you and he wants to set your life on a whole new course, a whole new direction. And that's the life you can step into. You can do it by praying along with me. This prayer that goes like this. God, I thank you so much for loving me. And I thank you so much for sending your son Jesus to make a way for me to have a relationship with you. God, I know I've sinned. And I know, God, that you are perfect and that you are holy and my stuff, my sin has separated us. But because of your love, Jesus died on the cross for my sin. And I ask you to, by the power of his death and resurrection, please forgive me. Please send Jesus to live inside of me. God, I want you to become my friend today. I'm tired of being your enemy, God. And I want you to change me, and I need you to clean my life up. And God, would you please set me on a course of humility? for the rest of my days. And that choice to give your life to Jesus is the biggest choice of your whole life. Nothing matters more. It's so weighty that around here we ask people to tell us when they made that decision and I'm going to ask you to do that with me right now. 
want you to know that nobody's going to embarrass you. I'm the only person looking around this room. But if you decided today to set your pride aside and step into a relationship with Jesus, acknowledge your need of a Savior, would you be so bold as to slip your hand up and make eye contact with me and just say, yes, yeah, right there. Way to go, bud. Way to go. God's changing you right now, and you, way to go. Are there any others? Just be real bold. God, I pray for us individually and as a community that pride would be so far from us. That we would walk and we would live in humility and relationship with you. That we wouldn't have a need to get to a place of some dramatic thing humbling us because it's just our continual posture. And that Jesus, we'd be real honest with you when we have needs that we would just come to you. Like this woman in Mark 7. And that we would bow low and that we would yield, and that we would humbly request, Jesus, we're not worthy. Jesus, I'm not deserving. But Jesus, I have great need. Would you please grant my request, Jesus? May that be our posture. God, I pray in our humility that others would see you in us and that they would hunger and thirst after you, that our lives would be the sign that directs them toward you and to you, and that we would engage in conversation and dialogue, and that we wouldn't be ashamed of your work in us, your gospel in us, your change in us, but we'd be honest and forthright and truth-telling about who and what's made the difference, you. Help us with all of that, Jesus. We desire to please you and know you and serve you and humbly live in relationship with you, God. We pray all of this in the precious and strong name of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, the lover of our souls. And the church said,